we're doing a series called Encounters with Jesus. And what we're doing is we're looking at snapshots from Jesus, his life and his teaching from the, the book of Luke. And there are in the book of Luke, there are a number of passages and parables that are unique to, to Luke. Uh, as a, and that, that the Gospel of uh, Matthew or Mark or John doesn't include. And so today we're looking at Luke chapter 18 of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. In uh, Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9, last week we looked at the parable of the widow and the unjust judge, the persistent widow and the unjust judge. In the last two weeks we talked about prayer in the book of Luke. Luke highlights this theme of prayer repeatedly throughout the book and in, in the book of Acts as well, which Luke also wrote, we see the people of God praying. We see the life of Jesus was prayerful. We see the people of God. Uh, we see he called the people of God, his people to pray. Um, and in Luke chapter 18, this parable is a story of two men who went up to the temple to pray. And I'm calling this two approaches to God. Two approaches to God. One was a religious man, and the other was an irreligious man. An ungodly uh, tax collector. Somebody who was despised in the culture of the day. And so let's pray it as we, we dive in. Father, as we read the scriptures, would you open our eyes to see gospel truth? Would you awaken sleeping hearts, raise dead hearts and lives to life? May we hear your voice and respond. And may each of us put our trust in Christ alone for righteousness and salvation. Lord, deliver us from the deception of trusting in anything else or anyone else but Christ alone. For rescue and righteousness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One theologian describes this parable as a parable of two prayers. And those prayers, those two prayers uh, that appear are, are two kinds of hearts. There's a contrast and, and not only seen in the way that they make the request, but also in the way that they approach God. And so let's read this together. He also told them, he also told this parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself 
will be exalted. Now there were now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. This is the word of the Lord, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So here's our big idea this morning. Jesus exposed self-righteousness as a false hope of salvation. And he taught that humble trust in God's mercy is necessary for justification. Jesus exposed self-righteousness as a false hope of salvation. And he taught that humble trust in God's mercy was necessary for justification. In this parable, Jesus uses two different people that were known in society. One was called a Pharisee. He was, you might think of him as a religious expert. Somebody who studied the Word of God and knew the Word of God. Knew how to pray. Knew how to communicate their faith to others. They were skilled and trained and they were very, um, they were in the know of what God's Word says. The, the word Pharisee means separated ones. And the scripture over and over calls God's people to be separate from the ungodly practices of the world. And so many of them pursued that holiness or that separation from contamination with the things of this world and pursued it in religious practices. They were consecrated, considered consecrated to God. Warren Wiersbe describes the Pharisees as this or their sin. He says the great sin of the Pharisees was hypocrisy, play acting, based on pride. Their religion was external, not internal. It was to impress people and not to please God. They bound people with heavy burdens while Christ came to set people free. They loved titles and the, pub, and the public recognition and exalted themselves at the expense of others. So we have this this first approach to God, this religious expert, this this one who seemed to know how to pray, who seemed to know how to approach God. And he has a prayer that mentions God. As one theologian says, he glances at God, but he contemplates himself saying, "I, I, 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 I don't do this. I don't do that. And these moral things that he didn't do, it was. It's a good thing not to commit adultery, right? It's a good thing to give tithes. It's a good thing to fast. And he fasted beyond what the law required of him. Fasted twice a week. It's a good thing not to extort from people. And so he was simply thanking God. God, thank you that I'm not an adulterer. That I'm not an extortioner. That I that I tithe and I fast and I and I do these things and that I'm not like other ungodly men. And he sees this tax collector in the same place. Now, my first point here is simply this: that trusting in one's own righteousness is a fatal mistake. Trusting 
in one's own righteousness is a fatal mistake. Verse 1 tells us why Jesus told this parable, who he was targeting in this parable. He was targeting in this parable those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And so this is a fatal mistake. Fatal mistake. Fatal mistake. And a very common mistake. Since I've been a Christian for about 25 years or so, I have engaged in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with people that I meet on the street everywhere I go. And I often find people who go to church or have a religious background, and generally, generally speaking, people feel pretty good about where they're at with God. You know, and, and so there's, and so sometimes I, I, I have had a hard time in sharing the good news or helping people see their need for the good news of Jesus because they're good. They know about Jesus. They go to church. And, and so I, I found some obstacles here. And, and one of them that I think has been a huge obstacle is this trusting in oneself for righteousness, being the, your own savior. That is the tendency of the human heart. To try to manufacture little saviors that are false hopes for salvation. And so uh, evangelism explosion came out several decades ago. And there were some diagnostic questions that Dr. James Kennedy came up with in evangelism explosion uh, used. And, it's, and, it's, and I, I found them very helpful. And so the questions go like this. If you were to die today, where would you spend eternity? Where would you go? Most people I've talked to would say I'd go to heaven. Okay. Second question: What? Why? What would you say if Jesus were to ask you, "Why should I let you into heaven?" What would you say? Now, a common response, common responses that I've gotten over the years, and I've asked this hundreds of times to people. Common response is, "I'm a good person. I go to church. I read my Bible. I've never killed anybody." I've never done anything real. I'm not that bad, right? And, and, and so the, the reason why that question is important because it exposes what a person is trusting in for salvation, for righteousness before God. I'm, I'm, I'm a good person. And this was this religious leader here. He was trusting in himself that he was righteous. He was trusting in his own righteousness and he tips his hat off to God and say, God, thank you for that. But he's really just thinking about himself. It's a self-centered, self-righteous prayer that he's praying here. And Jesus says that 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 Pharisee didn't leave the temple praying justified. He didn't leave right with God. In other words, if he would die, he would perish. He wasn't right with God. And and to the surprise of, of many Jews who heard this, Jesus said the tax collector was the one who was declared righteous. The tax collector was the one who walked away right with God, not the religious hero that many many perceived the Pharisees to be. Externally, they kept the rules. But Jesus had his harshest words to these guys because they failed failed to trust in God's righteousness and trusted in their own and they led other people to make those same mistakes. And so it's a fatal mistake. 
Uh, children, I asked my children this week, we did a devotional in 2 Timothy. And we were in 2 Timothy chapter 1. And Paul was commending the faith of Timothy. And he said, it was in your grandmother, and it was in your mother, and now it's in your, it's in you. This sincere faith, you got it. Right? And I asked my kids the question, because they've all been baptized. They profess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Is your faith sincere? Do you believe? Do you believe in Jesus as your righteousness? Do you trust Him alone for your righteousness? And this is a mistake that I, I, I don't want anybody here to make at City Church, Garland. I don't want any child to make the assumption and just assume that because you go to church or because you do these things that you're right with God. It is a trust in Jesus alone that is required, that God looks for, that He wants. And so we also see in this text that self-righteousness is accompanied by contempt. These two go together. You might call them twins. Okay? The ungodly twins. Alright? Self-righteousness is accompanied by contempt. Jesus told the parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And they treated others with contempt. They looked down upon others. I like how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this in the message. He says he told this story to some who were complacently, complacently pleased with their, themselves over their moral performance, and they looked down their noses at the common people. Many in the church have been hurt by people like this. People who are trusting in their own righteousness, and they feel pretty good about themselves. And they look down on others who aren't measuring up, who aren't pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps and doing something better with their lives and being a little more disciplined with their lives. And there's many who leave churches, leave community groups, and don't want anything to do with Christianity because they've experienced this coldness towards them rather than a welcoming of grace and kindness that Jesus seemed to give and did give to the outcast. And so Jesus highlights, or Luke highlights this, this combination of self-righteousness and showing contempt towards others. And we see the contrast of this other man who prayed quite a different prayer. He wasn't a professional prayer. He wasn't a professional student of the, the, the Bible. He was a tax collector. And tax collectors in that day were viewed as leeches of society. They were viewed as scum. Okay? A Jewish tax collector, some, somebody who uh, would, the Jewish community would have saw them as traitors. Those who had betrayed their people and had partnered up with ungodly Rome, the superpower of the day, and they were compromisers. They were, and, and many of them maybe did it for, for the money, for a nice cushy life. They were willing to tax the people of God and partner up with ungodly Rome. And, and so task collectors were viewed as, as outcast, as immoral. And yeah, I'm sure there, there was much injustice and, and extortion and sin that tax collectors had committed. And yet it was sinners like this that Jesus came to rescue. 
It was the sick that Jesus came to heal. It was the unrighteous that Jesus came to call to repentance. And the religious community and the religious leaders of the day didn't seem to see themselves in that category. And so look look at this prayer, simple prayer of this tax collector. Jesus said, but the tax collector standing afar off, he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Notice in this simple prayer, which by the way, that's how Jesus taught us to pray. Simple prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. As we forgive those who are indebted to us. Lead us not in temptation. Deliver us from evil. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Simple pattern of prayer that Jesus gave. And he corrected the religious community who had made prayer a public show and performance. Who said long prayers and repeated things over and over and appeared spiritual to those who saw them. And Jesus says, just pray simply. Pray sincerely. Don't try to impress people with your long prayers and how much you know. And so he prays this simple prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Notice his appeal for mercy. The, the, the Pharisee didn't see his need for mercy. But notice this tax collector's appeal to God for mercy. God, be merciful to me. Well, how would he even know that God is merciful? The Old Testament does teach that God is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's a repeated statement about who God is when God reveals himself in the scripture. But he's also a God of justice, as we looked at last week in the parable of the persistent widow appealing to the unjust judge for justice. And Jesus says, if, if, that, if that judge answered that widow... How much more will God answer his elect who cry out to him day and night for justice? So in in chapter 18, we see two appeals, two prayers that are directed, that were, were direct petitions that were directed to petitions for justice and were directed to petitions for mercy. Now, if this tax collector were to get justice, as I said last week, justice is essentially giving what's due one. What would it be? The wages of sin is death. You see, God is a just judge. He's a holy God. He doesn't just throw sin under the rug. It has to be dealt with appropriately. And yet we see in Scripture, God is merciful. He does show mercy. If if He didn't, we would all be toast, burnt toast. In Psalm 51, David, who was a godly man, but he had committed some very ungodly acts of adultery and murder and deceit. And and he was confronted in his sin by Nathan the prophet and he repented. And Psalm 51 is a record of his repentant, humble prayer where he cried out 
to God. And this is was this was his prayer, very similar to the, the tax collector's prayer. Have mercy on me. He was appealing to the mercy of God. Have mercy on me. What a beautiful prayer. I think we should repeat that prayer. God be merciful to me, a sinner. God, Lord Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. The prayer of blind Bartimaeus. Lord Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And yet, how many people are walking into churches and places of worship today not sensing any need for mercy or forgiveness or cleansing and saying prayers like the Pharisee? Thank you, Father. Or thank you, God, that I didn't do this or that or this. But I'm doing this, that, and this. We all need mercy. We all need grace. And this should humble us, by the way. When we perceive our need for mercy, we should be humbled by that. And we should have a disposition of humility towards others when we realize we need mercy just as much as that, quote, terrible sinner next to us, around us, out there. We're all in need of mercy, great mercy. Notice also his acknowledgement of, of his sin, or his self being a sinner. Here's a person who is coming to grips with the, 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 his sin and recognizing it's not acceptable for me to just continue in this or to ignore it or to not take any action at all. Here's a man who probably didn't feel worthy to come to God. He's, he's, he's looking down, he's beating his breast, he's standing far off, and he just thought be merciful to me, a sinner. Again, this is similar to David's prayer, where David said, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. I think this word here, justified, in verse 14, is key to understanding what Jesus was getting at here. This is a gospel word. Those of us who are Protestants, who are Christians, should value this word. I'm going to explain it because maybe it may be new to some people here. Maybe some children may not know what justification is. Right? But being justified is simply to be declared righteous. To be made right. It's a Greek word that's used 39 times in the New Testament. It means... Uh, here to, to make or render right. Jesus addressed the religious community as those who justify themselves before men. You see, the human heart has a tendency to self-justification. We tend to blame, complain, and make excuses about the things that are wrong in our life to everybody else. The woman you gave me. The devil made me do it, right? We, we have that tendency to try to justify ourselves. And yet it's like, it's like trying to cover up with fig leaves. It's not going to work. It's not effective. God has something better for us than the fig leaves that we try to cover ourselves with. Than the good things that we try to make up the good, make up the bad with the good things that we do. This is what, what religion does. It's trying to outweigh the good the bad with good. And so Jesus said, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. 
What is, what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Now we do know about at least one Pharisee in the Bible who got delivered from his self-righteousness and his pursuit, his approach to God in a self-righteous way. The Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul wrote these words. Here's a confession of a former Pharisee. He said, indeed, in Philippians 3, he said, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as dung, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Note, listen to this. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on, what's it depend on, church? Faith. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. Paul came to know the true righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus taught justification by faith. Paul's message and Jesus' message was not contrary to one another, as some Bible students have concluded as they read the Gospels and as they read the Pauline text, epistles, they've concluded, some have concluded that maybe there's two different Gospels, two different messages. And yet we see in Luke 18, Jesus is teaching justification by faith. Simple trust dependent upon God and not oneself for righteousness. And Paul expounds on that. He takes Jesus' teaching as foundational and he expounds on it with apostolic authority. In Romans chapter 4, he goes back to Abraham to defend this glorious gospel teaching that we're justified by faith. He goes all the way back to Abraham, Genesis 15. And he says, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as Righteousness. So simple. A child can grasp that and understand that. The worst of sinners can hear that message today and respond in faith and turn from sin and respond in faith and experience being made right with God instantly. It's beautiful. Abraham believed God and is accounted to him as righteousness. Verse 4, note, now the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as, but as due, his due. And the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. This is amazing. The Lord justifies the ungodly. Paul wrestles with how can a just and holy God, in Romans, how can a just and a holy God justify and, and, and just let, let off the hook those who have broken the law? And he, and he how, how, can, how can he, church? How would you answer that question? If God is holy, if God is righteous and just, how does that, how does that correlate to... His mercy and His love and His forgiveness. Let me help you out here. Right, we know this. Jesus, the cross, 
All right? We read the gospel. We are to read the gospel in light of the cross. Each, all four of the gospels are taking us somewhere with the story of Jesus. All right? He's bringing the kingdom. He's healing people. He's displaying the power of God, the love of God, the heart of God, the way of God. But Jesus came to be the sacrifice for our sins, to be the Savior of the world, as Luke 2 already declared through an angel. Luke's already already picked up on that. Here's, Here's the Savior who's born in the city of David, a Savior, Christ the Lord. So Luke's already given us a hint of where this story is going. He came to save. Right? And he's he's headed to Jerusalem. He's headed to a cross where he would die an unjust death. Somebody who never sinned once. And he would die an unjust death on our behalf. To satisfy justice. God's demand. Punishment for sin. The justice... That the punishment you and I deserve, Jesus took on Himself so that you and I can find mercy at the foot of the cross. This is good news. Jesus taught good news. And Luke, he, when he implemented the, the communion, the, the, um, the, the Lord's Supper, he said, this is my body given for you. This is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Right? And then he said at the end of Luke, repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed everywhere. So we have good news to share. So what's the implications of this idea of justification by faith that Jesus and both Paul emphasize here? John Piper does a great job in talking about this and countering those who assume that Jesus and Paul had a different message. He says, Here, here's some of the implications Piper argues for. He says, Jesus' gospel is also Paul's. He says, nothing we do is, is, is a basis for God's acceptance. Our standing with God is based on Jesus, not us. Transformation is the fruit, not the root of justification. And all our goodness is evidence and confirmation, not the grounds of our justification. Church, we must get this. We must understand this, that God makes us right by faith, not by our works. And we must be trusting in Jesus for our righteousness. We must look to God's mercy, not to ourselves. I've said, as I've said before, that trusting in uh, ourselves as righteousness and trusting in our good works to get us into heaven is like trusting in a parachute that has been packed by the devil and going skydiving with it and jumping out of an airplane trusting that that parachute's going to save you. And it won't. Jesus is the only Savior. His righteousness, His work, not ours, not what we do. We sing about this. We sing these lyrics here in a modern form of this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. 
And they come and they gather with us to hear the gospel, to worship God. We want to follow the, the one who says, I'm lowly and gentle in heart. We want, to be, we want to be mindful of those around us and not just be thinking about the I, I, me, and my. We want to deal ruthlessly with that root of pride that leads us not to pray as we ought, and leads us not to love as we ought others. And so I think Luke strategically places this parable of really all three sections here, four sections, and, and you know, I think the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit, bottom line, right? Yeah, we believe that, right? The Holy Spirit inspired Luke and the biblical writers to write what they wrote. There's a coherence to it. There's, there's purpose. There's a message, a clear message that is, that is there for us common readers to get. And, and the next verses in this section, I think it fits great with what we're doing, what we've done today with the child dedication. Jesus, there's this, this experience here. That I don't think this was the only time. They were bringing other infants to him that he might touch them. And when his disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called to them, to him, saying, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child, like a child, shall not enter it. These are beautiful words, and this is countercultural to the first century, where children were not viewed as high status. They were treated... Not, not, not as they ought to be. And, and, and by the way, we see this heart of humility that we see in Jesus. Humility is expressed in the way that we treat the lowly around us. How do you treat the person when you're the most powerful person in the room, or perceived the, the most perceived important person in the room? How do you treat the people who are the most perceived less important in the room? You see, that's that's where humility. Is revealed, or pride is, is exposed. How do we treat these little ones who have been made in the image of God? See, Jesus enthusiastically received them. He told his disciples, "Hey, don't don't forbid them bringing the kids to me. Like this is a good thing. They're not they're not a burden. These children are a blessing, and and we have something to learn from them. Let them come, receive them willingly." And learn to receive the kingdom like they receive all the gifts that they experience in life. Children have a way of just depending on mom and dad to take care of them because they're helpless. They need help. They need mom and dad's help. They need love. They need care. And as, as loving parents, we, we, we enthusiastically give to our kids those things that they need because we love them. And Jesus teaches us to approach God not as professional prayers, not as professional religious people, not as experts of the Bible, not as self-righteous, disciplined, godly people or people who are godly in, in, in their own righteousness. He teaches us to approach God as a child and Him being our Father. Our Father in Heaven. I love the simplicity in that. Maybe that can fuel and, and, and stir and, and ignite a deeper prayer experience for you in your communion with the Father. I know it has for me. I'm I'm just a son. I'm not 
I'm not coming to you as a pastor, as a father, as a husband. I'm a son. Dad, I'm here. I need you. I'm hurting. I need wisdom. I need guidance. I don't have all the answers, but you do. And I'm looking to you for help, so I'm praying. God, help me. Show me. Lead me. Love you. God, you care more about this mission than I do. You care more about these people than I do. And I just want to partner with what you're doing in their lives. I just want to partner with what you're doing in the world through my prayers, through my service. God, it's all about you. It's not about me. And so this is the heart we're to have. And of course, I don't think Jesus is teaching us to be childish. There are things about children that we, it, we would do well not to imitate. Right? But there are a lot of things about them, like when it comes to dependence and faith and trust, that we would do well to learn from and follow their example. So let me close with a couple points of application here. Approach God with humble dependence upon His great mercy. Appeal to His mercy. He is merciful. He is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He has all that you need and all that I need. When we come to corporate worship, yes, we're bringing an offering of worship and we're honoring Him and our worship is ultimately about Him, but we're the needy one in the relationship. We're coming with significant needs to, to, the, to the relationship. We need to be encouraged. We need joy. We need peace. We need wisdom. We need help. We need strength. We need deliverance. He gives us all that. And in, and in prayer and in worship, we, we are to delight in Him, and He delights in us, and we experience this intimacy with God. Avoid trying to impress people and treating others with contempt. I, I can say that I have fallen into this way more times than I would like to admit. I think there's a lot of accidental Pharisees there's a lot of accidental Pharisees. Most, most of us aren't trying to be Pharisees. Most of us have sincere desires. We're trying to just honor God and love God and live a consecrated life. But we need to continually have our hearts examined and brought before God and allow Him to address those motive things that's going on, the, the why behind what we're doing. Because externally it may look great. You may you're killing it. Everyone is like, man, you're rocking it. You're amazing. You're a super Christian. Man, I want to be like you. You're a missionary. You're you know the Bible. You you're a prayer warrior. You're this. You're that. But what's going on in your heart? And Jesus always brings it back to the heart. What's going on under there? He cares about that. And it could be the difference between eternal life or eternal punishment. Well, everyone else is like, man, you're amazing. There are going to be people who come to Jesus on that day and say, Lord, we've done all these things in your name. And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. He's looking at the heart. Is our trust, our faith in him? Do we know him? We're about that here. And so don't try to impress people. Be free to just be a son or a daughter before the Almighty. Don't, don't look down on others with contempt. We've all done it. Despising others, comparing ourselves with others, feeling better about ourselves because at least I'm not doing that. Right? 
We all need mercy. We need his righteousness. And lastly, welcome children gladly and learn from their dependence. Learn from their humility. Learn from their simple trust in Christ. You all win. Bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for these words. We need to hear these. Help us by the power of your spirit to deal ruthlessly with the pride in our lives and those little saviors that don't save. Those idols, those attitudes that don't honor you or express love for others. With you, there is forgiveness before your fear. And so we put our hope in you, God. We put our hope in your mercy. Teach us to live like that, faithfully, trusting you, depending on you. Lord, may we experience your grace in our lives. And may the fruit of it be evident through our actions and our actions.